I wanted to start with you, Mike. Um, one of the common rebuttals or you know, responses to a lot of what you said is like, yeah, that's great, but that's just like BS, like high flute and stuff, you know, like how do you actually do that? You know, like they might, like someone that's sitting here and they're hearing that and then they go to their, their businesses and they're like, okay, but how do I actually implement that and what does it actually look like? Um, if someone, you know, you know, stopped you out there and they said that, how do you respond to that? Do you want to- Yeah, I don't need that, do yeah, I? You don't need that. <laughs> <laughs> like, what do you got? That's confusing. Um, I think I, I honestly, like, again, I'm kind of a big, um, I don't really like to overcomplicate things too much. I like simple. Um, that doesn't mean easy. Simple doesn't mean easy, right? So when people say, yeah, and I get that a lot, like, well, this is BS. Like, how do you, how do you go implement that? And I just look at them and I say, like, you just go implement it, right? Like, you just say, this is what I think and this is what we believe and you just start doing it. Like, it is not more complicated than you making sure you have clarity or your team or your leaders or whatever, clarity around who you are as a company and, and what you believe, right? And how you impact the world and being clear about that and then just starting to say it. And you'll be shocked as you start to say it and be clear about it, how these things take hold within your organization. It isn't gonna be easy, and as I said, it's not going to be for everyone, i.e. get ready that you're gonna start turning people over, right, when you start doing it. But the, and that's gonna be painful for a little while, right? So simple doesn't equal easy, but on the other end of it, you, end, you have a much more highly aligned team and you have people that wanna be there that believe in what you're doing. And you've also taken people who you've kind of not been being clear with and not been being clear about what you really wanna go do as an organization and you've set them free, right, to go do something, so their, their great work wherever else that might be, so. Dr. Collard, do you wanna to add to that at all? No, I think that's right. Um, I think that, um, and there are, some, there are some tactics, right? So at the end of the day, you still got to figure out how you're going to operate your business with these new kinds of big ideas. So, so, but there are some tactical things around how you are more intentional about who you hire that are going to be more likely to succeed in your organization. There's some definite things that you can do to tactically change what you've done in the past. Um, not just hiring. Everything, every decision you make as an organization should be around with those in mind. So holding yourselves accountable, getting a, if it's your leadership team or whatever it is, where there's a lot of accountability that's filtering everything that we do, especially as it involves our people, especially it involves decisions about our people through our mission and our values. Um, and you'd be surprised how many opportunities there are to be really specific and tactical, hiring people, paying people, promoting people, assigning people to training, assigning clients to all decisions. How do they reflect? what is that we say that we're about, right? That we say that we're about, hopefully we're gonna act. So there's, there's ways in over, and you're gonna make a lot of mistakes. You're gonna do a lot of it wrong, right? It's kind of, but it's that learning and moving forward. Yeah. Can I add something to that? Yeah, go ahead. Now, see the q and I like the Q&A, now you can't stop me here. This thing's all. I can't take the mic away from you. Wacky. Um, um, so to add to that, one, one practical thing uh, that you can do is Make sure that these, uh, to Brian's point, he's exactly right, you have to start talking about it and you have to start saying these things, right? People have to get used to hearing it. Um, make sure that you're pulling that forward all the way into um, you know, the, the hiring process to the point where it, it's present the first time that a potential employee 
interfaces to your brand, right? The first time they find you online or they, they meet your people somewhere. These are all the, the, the first, what I call it, like kind of the first touches with your brand, right, that people have. Your values, um, your purpose, all these things, like they need to come forward right in those things. And it'll be super helpful in the hiring process because that's a filtration, right? So like I think core values um, are super important. I think that um, they're not enough though, right? Like core values are a filter through which we say, here's what we believe and that attracts certain people. And then we put them through a filter, which is our core values, because you can take two people that value the same thing and they're gonna perform at totally different levels because they, they don't totally align on the purpose. Bring that stuff forward into your hiring process so it's crystal clear to people like, this is the kind of people that work here. Do I wanna be there or do I not wanna be there? So. Yeah, I think related to that too, one of the questions was, um, Dr. Kali, you mentioned job crafting. Is it better to hire for a specific business role or try to craft a job around an employee? Um, so I always, as a psychologist, I get the prerogative of always saying either it depends, right? It depends. There isn't a one or, one or the other or both <laughs> or both. Um, I'm not sure that, that you know, um, a lot of this is situational. There's, there's been a lot of traction around, I mean, and you probably have heard this, right? Hire for attitude and train for skill, those kinds of things. The thing, we've kind of in many ways have been hiring for the wrong things a long time. Um, why, why, are, why do we hire for things that we can actually train and, and improve people on and uh, not really pay attention to those things that are never going to change about people? Um, people's attitudes generally don't change. Even if you change the culture, even if you... You know, there's, there's aspects of that we should be thinking about, right? To, to bring the right people that are going to be the right fit into our organization, knowing that there's some things that we're probably going to need with all of us to improve, hopefully, technical skills or, or skills-related things that actually we can make a difference on. Um, job crafting, I think, can be helpful in any context. Um, and it can be done on a, a large scale, right? Some of it depends on how many other people are doing those jobs. So one of the, the, the downsides of this idea of job crafting, if you're not going to have that person, that work needs to get done, somebody's got to do it. So right, if you're the only person that's in a job that's going to have that work to do and no one else can do it, you can't really craft that away. Um, but you'd be surprised how many um, jobs we're, we're doing a little bit of this right now. So we have, right, we're, I'm in a, a department with 14 faculty members and kind of the expectation for faculty members is that we all do exactly the same things. This much time teaching, this much time advising, this much time doing service. When our gifts and talents are incredibly different. Some of us do certain parts of our work at a much different level and a much different engagement with. As a department, we're, 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 we're trying to deliver this experience to our students. Why don't we allow people to change their job description a little bit to do more of what they're amazing at and what they really love? And somebody else, and you know what? With 14 people, there's enough flexibility in that that it almost works perfectly. So we're just starting to do that a little bit ourselves. A lot of organizations would be like that. Take your leadership team, or if you've got a team of employees, right, um, that's doing similar things. Creating that opportunity for some flex, it can be hard, right? You're gonna deal with equity issues. Well, that's just, you know, or, or you're gonna have some things, nobody likes to do that, okay, right? Every, every piece of work has some of that too. So there's challenges, but man, let's get out of this mindset that there's one job description and it's perfect for everybody. That's just not true. Right? Yeah, um, that's related to a question that just came in. It says, how do you lead through big organizational change? 
remaining positive and future thinking, but also acknowledging the pain that it can cause. So it sounds like that's what you're going through at Calvin a little bit. Um, you know, Mike, you probably went through that as Worksite had scaled and you guys started to adopt more core values and talk more about that. Um, so it sounds like th the question is really, how do you be future looking, but then acknowledge like there's gonna be some pain? Like you talked about, there's gonna be some turnover. Like, can you guys talk about how to manage that or you know, how to get through that? Yeah, you want me to start? Yeah. Okay, I feel like this thing can't hear me. Um, I think that, so managing change uh, is something that I think you learn and you relearn it again and you relearn it again at different phases. And we're going through that even now as our company um, you know, focuses on what we need to do for the next wave and the next level of growth, right? Like we hit a gap and we knew we needed to cross it and it was time to make some change and we're putting those things in place. There's a big cultural piece to that, like I talked about before. So uh, back to core values for one second, right? One of our core values um, so I'm not the believer in the like, and I'm sure Matt will probably talk about some of this, he's a big core values guy later, uh, in the like, you know, we believe in ethics and we believe, like, okay, like big deal, right? Like one of our core values, core values, you should think of core values as um, kind of like laws, right? Like don't speed, don't do this, but they're like laws stated as positive behavior. That's how I view them, right? So one of our core values, we, we phrase all our core values in I language, right? Because I want people to be able to like, you know, think about it in, in their terms, right? Like I do this. And one of our core values is I focus on today, but I dream about tomorrow. And so it's, a, it's really a, an intrinsic value that like we want to see in the people we hire that they understand that like we're playing a big game, but you still got to play the hand you got dealt. Okay, and we, got, and we got to deal with that, right? And I think that's kind of part of that as you're managing change. Everybody, um, one thing I've learned recently going through change is that everybody is at a different phase in that change. I might be up here, right? Like I, I'm already like way into the change and thinking about it, but my whole team isn't necessarily at the same point I am, right? And I have to be cognizant of the fact um, and I think Brian said it during his talk, like sometimes we have to kind of like meet people where they're at, right? Like where are they at in the, in, the, in the stage of change and helping them understand like how it affects them and where they're at and like leading them through that, so. I think that's back to that notion as managers and leaders and really smart people, we tend to think that we need to lead with information. We need to lead with empathy. We lead with empathy. People will be more receptive to the information that we have for them if we meet them where they're at. So I think that's a, that's, a, that's a thing that I'm still figuring it out, but I'm finding, man, it makes every relationship better. I, I, when I do that right, I tell you my kids and my wife will probably say, man, when you lead with empathy, it's so much better, right? How do we, how do we, it, it's hard. But I think through change, that's, people are at different places, so understanding, appreciating where they're at uniquely is huge. I think another thing with change, um, Change is the hardest thing we do as leaders, no doubt. That is the hardest thing we do. Um, but what we, we tend to focus on the change itself. There's, there's so much work that can happen in advance of the change, right? Some of you have studied this, and the, the old Kurt Lewin from like 50 years ago said, there's unfreezing, there's change, and then there's kind of refreezing. So, the, we, so we tend to focus in the change and that's it. Let's make the change. It's like pulling the Band-Aid off. Best way to do this is just let's do it. That's the worst way to do it, right? It's gonna, so there's these things that we do kind of up front, building coalitions, building support, dreaming, being flexible, showing some humility that we may not have it right yet before you actually start implementing, right? So you're trying things out, experimenting, um, building some momentum, 
then and absolutely change, right? Still being flexible, letting that you you got to build this this coalition of other people that are going to support it, and then start to refreeze, which is celebrating victories. And we're really bad at celebrating victories. A lot of business leaders like we're. You know, um, and it doesn't have to just be financial victories, right? It's not just the financial victories. Um, celebrating the things that are going right in support of that long-term vision of change that we're trying to accomplish. I think those are all some things around a bigger process than just the change itself. Yeah, that's that's good. Um, the switching gears a little bit. Uh, there's a question that said, um, knowing it's hard to quantify, how do you measure employee engagement? Um, how do you measure improvement? And I think to to read into this a little bit, I think you know as the company scales past a certain size, a small size up to bigger, you kind of lose the pulse as maybe the leader or the founder or whatever, and you have to have another mechanism to measure that employee engagement. So um, besides a great tool like Waypoint, um, how do you? <laughs> bad to plug it there. Um, how how no? How do you measure that? Yeah, <laughs> like how how do you? Failed maybe at that? I'll tell you how not to measure it, how most people do measure it. Managers and leaders think they have this figured out. They go like this. We're doing okay. (laughs) I I, I have implemented um, formal ways to measure engagement in dozens and dozens of organizations of all different sizes, all different types. Um, When we start the process, the managers kind of tell us what they think it is. I've never once had them be right. And it's almost always not better than they think. <laughs> right? As manager leader, we think we're doing great. At the end of the day, our, generally our cultures aren't what we think they are. They're not what they are. And if you do a, a good, a, have, a, have a, a professionally developed and robust process to gather that information, um, you'd be surprised. What's really important, the biggest mistake that people, so, so measure it. Measure it. Get some numbers, some metrics around it so you have a baseline. And it gives you some ways to be intentional. Not about doing 10 things, but do one thing the first year on the, with the results of the survey. Do one thing and make some improvement. And you know what? You'll get some traction. The worst thing that happens is people measure it. They don't like the results. They do nothing with it. Things will get worse. They're not going to get better. And you'll never be able to give a survey again because you didn't do anything with the results. So if you're serious, it takes courage. I've had most leaders and managers tell me it was the most um, courageous thing they had to do in their company was measure the engagement of their employees. Took the most humility of anything that they had to do. So if you're not up for it, don't do it. You know, but I think it's the only way. Yeah, it does more harm than good. That's, yeah, that's kind of wise words. Yeah, I, and I, I would second that. Like you have to get data, right? So whatever platform and things like that that you're going to use, you have to get data um, and it has to be, there has to be some continuity to it, right? Like you can't just like we send the survey out once per year and ask people how they're doing. Like you should, if you're, if you've moved into more of a like conversational performance management mantra, right? Where we're having weekly conversations and things like that, then you should be able to get those data points on more frequency and report. Like we put them, like when we have our executive meetings, like one of the metrics, we know what the employee pulse is and what they're reporting. And if it, if it's off and if people report low, like it gets brought up and we talk about it, like what's up with this person? Is there a problem? Like, do we need to, um, is there something going on in their life? Like, talk to the manager. Have you brought this up, right? And we're not great at it yet. Like, we're still figuring that out. A lot of that challenge comes from, you know, we're trying to figure out how to push that down to lower layers of management now, right? So 
How do we train? How do you, um, you know, to Brian's point, like teaching empathy, teaching these skills to the next layer of management? Like that's friggin' tough. Like that is for us, I think, when it comes to scaling, I've never done it, right? So this is what I said before. Like every day I'm running the biggest company I've ever run. That we, we need to do that. We know we need to do it. We don't know how to do it. We're, trying, we're stumbling into that right now, right? And trying to figure it out. Um, but that's, that's super, super critical. You have to have data. You can't, you really can't guess. Um, the second thing is though, you, you should just be, you should be asking and you should be having enough conversations with people where you're kind of, you can kind of pull some of that out and see if it jives with like the data that you're getting, right? Like what are you hearing from people? Like what are the stories that you're hearing within your company? Like when you walk the floor, are people like, oh, yeah, we killed this and we're killing that? Or are they like bitching, right? And sorry, and um, I try really hard. I got a text earlier like, did you swear? And I'm like, no, I did pretty good so far. Um, you know, are, are people complaining and like what, what, what are you hearing? right? Like when that, when you hear those voices coming out, right? From the floor, like what are they saying? And, and match that against the data and see if it makes sense. So anyway. Yeah, I'd second that totally. I mean, the quantitative and qualitative, awesome. Combine them, get the reality. Um, related to that, if, if that performance management, having those conversations is about coaching and development, how do you decouple it from compensation if you do? So I know that's a big stumbling block for people is like, Typically, the annual review is like, listen, we're just here to talk about my 5% raise. And the actual discussions about how I'm doing and what I'm doing is like, well, yeah, whatever. Just get to how much I'm going to make next year. Like, that's great. Like, that's the, that's the classic case for a annual review. So how do you decouple those? Because that's scary. I think that's what you talked about, the trend of a lot of companies that are ditching the annual performance review, but then they're like, well, what do we do in place of it? Yeah, coaching is great, but people are still concerned with, that, with what they're going to make. You know, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I can. Um, the, you know, we, we've built so much purpose into that, the traditional annual review. It's supposed to do everything under the sun. Is this beautiful thing that everything is reliant. And it just, it, does, it probably doesn't work at any of them well. So um, there has been this trend to, to decouple them a little bit more, which Again, I, I don't have the perfect answer for you on this, but I, I think that there, there's some wisdom in that decoupling. One, in that having those valuable conversations about improving performance need to happen in real time. We don't need to rehash them every six months or 12 years because they're happening, right? Goals is another one. Where did this, so goal setting always happens. Where did we get the idea that goals get set once a year and they don't need to change throughout the course of the year? When did that, right? Businesses change. The, the rate of change in all of our businesses is so rapid. If your goals aren't changing more than ever, annually, I kind of worry about you, right? So all of this built in, we should be having these kinds of separate conversations, I think. So compensation, um, yes, uh, right? Hopefully, we pay performance is a pretty good idea. Pay for, um, you know, in different sorts. You can use it, talk about it in an incentive kind of sort of way. But also, I mean, I had a, um, I had a boss at one time is like, no, we, you know, we're, we're paying for performance, but it's what, you're, what you were hired to do, right? So, this, you know, kind of back to setting clear, expect setting clear expectations. Um, I think what's happening in these organizations that are dropping the evaluation is that they're, they're still having those conversations and, and they will have them as right groups of managers setting compensation for the next year and come back and have those discussions about pay 
certainly based on performance, in a separate conversation that's about pay, right? And, and, and maybe after we've done some, um, maybe of the development or, or coaching. Maybe, maybe you get the order different. Maybe we have that, so, right? Those, those are still gonna happen on a regular basis, semi-annually, annually, um, but it's decoupled because the problem has always been that conversation about a rating and the conversation about my pay. If it's, if it's, if it's what I thought, if it's more than what I thought or less than what I thought, my body is not listening anymore. I'm in this fight or flight threat kind of response that any conversation about the most important thing in that conversation, what to do about development, is gone, is wasted, and that's the only time we do it. So, I mean, that, I think there's some wisdom in decoupling that, right, and having those be different things. Are they gonna be related to each other? Yeah, probably. If they're not, there's a real problem. We had this great, right, development conversation, and all of the touch-ins that we've done on a weekly basis around performance have been great, and you know that you're the only person that's not getting a pay raise. Well, there's a disconnect there, and you've got an integrity problem, right? So it's got, there's gotta be some alignment through that. But. Yeah. Um, I, I largely agree with that. I think that um, pay and comp is always a weird thing. Like nobody, like money is just a weird topic, right? And so the more you talk about it, um, the less weird it gets. Um, I think that especially with younger managers, you know, when they have to have those annual pay conversations, it is like one hella awkward in that conversation, right? Because they don't know how to have it. They, they, they feel like they're like, you know, we're, we're like, Who's gonna, it's like playing chicken, like who's gonna move first? It, the more you talk about money and people understand, I think, um, what certain roles pay, it's not a friggin' mystery anymore. Like there is no surprise. They're not gonna ask you, it's like basics of negotiation, right? Like if I have certain, like I will lead, right, with certain things that are like, it ain't gonna be different than this, right? Like let's not bother going there. And so when we have these pay conversations, if you've just, laid it out there so they understand this is the range, right? And we're not great at this yet, but this is where we're trying to go. They understand what's possible, right? And they understand if I wanna be here, then I need to now elevate, I need to go here, right? So let's have a conversation about how I learn more and develop so that I can move from this role to this band up here, right? And as I'm moving through that performance, there's like this band that I can kind of move through. If we're having regular conversations, when we show up to that conversation once per year where we're gonna make our pay adjustment, we almost shouldn't need to have the meeting because it should be a foregone conclusion. You know if you're on track and you're on target and yep, this is what this is gonna look like because this is how we do it. Now, we do lay on top of that a bonus program for all our employees. They know exactly how they're gonna get it and we didn't always used to do this. They know exactly how they're gonna get it and if the company's outperforming, right, this is where the numbers piece can come in, they know what they're gonna get. Right? But that is separate and laid on top of the basics of their compensation for their particular role and making sure employees really want to know how they can move from one role to the next. Like, what is my path from the day you hire me, like throughout the organization? They want to understand that. And that's where those are those compensation triggers, right? Like, yep, you can move from here to here. Here's the 14 things we're going to have to do as a company to invest in you, and you're going to have to do to move from this band to, to this band up here. Um, that's how we approach it. So, yeah. and a lot of that stuff, I think, uh, as you, if you're smaller on the smaller end, you don't think enough about because you're not you're not painting the picture for upward mobility for your employees. But the recurring theme from both of you guys is like you need to be thinking about this. Like this shouldn't be something that's an afterthought because you're going to be at a much worse spot if you don't do these things. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a, a charge, I think, to any leaders in the organization to say, okay, 
you know, we think this is not as important as these urgent tasks over here. You know, I read one of the frustrations over there was like, how do you balance the urgent in place of the important? And um, it's a, it's a, a never-ending you know, process. Um, question about OKRs, uh, objectives and key results, um, which I think um, is, you know, I wanted to ask both of you guys about what do you think about some of these frameworks like OKRs or even like an EOS or um, scaling up, some of these frameworks which are like strategy frameworks to grow your business. Um, maybe what has been your experience with them? Brian, what have you seen from like companies that have embraced them? Um, and how does it relate to some of these other topics that we've talked about? Well, um, I mean, I mean, there's, there's lots of different ideas and frameworks. I, 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 you know, I, I'm hesitant to say too much about any specific because it, it all depends on how that's working in a given organization. I don't think there are, this is, again, the, because I'm a psychologist, I'm not a business person, this notion in business of best practices is kind of a bad idea. Okay. Best practices is where we start. Business people get this all, they think this is where we end. We want to try to achieve some best, that there's one methodology that's going to work for everybody. Does not exist, right? It, it, again, back to that notion, it depends, right? Best practices is where we start. So these methods and metrics and methodologies, let's start and see what might be working at other places and what might work here, but then let's test it. Let's not adopt best practices because they're best practices. Let's adopt best practices because we've, pr we've gathered the data and proven that this one is the one that's going to work here. Um, so I don't think there are perfect systems, methodologies that, have, that are going to apply in the same way and have the same results in every different organization. I just don't believe it because we're different. Um, you know, pick your methodology, figure, figure out, do some work to figure out how it's going to work for you, and then execute the heck out of it, right? So much of the success of these is, is how well it's implemented and executed. Um, it's not if it's the perfect one or not. Um, so, um, you know, I, there's a little, there's a, there's a big debate going on right now in terms of goal setting um, about um, cascade, the importance of what used to be called management by objectives or cascading goals, right? That every employee's goals should be aligned with their, their, their manager's goals, which if we take it all the way up to the top, or if we all achieve our goals, the organization's going to achieve its goals as well. I don't know, it used to be that for, since the 1980s, that's kind of been a, a mantra, and a lot of big corporations use that. But there's been some pushback around it and how effective it is and, and, um, and some of the, cult, the culture that it can create in terms of a hierarchical culture. Um, some of the dynamics that it creates between levels in your organization that might not be healthy, especially as organizations are becoming flatter. So there's, there's a, a dynamic there on some of these goal-setting frameworks that I think is good for us to question, but I don't have, I don't have much of an answer. Um, on the, I'll add to that by saying on the topic of best practices, um, I kind of hate best practices. And there, there's a reason, there's a reason, there's a, I would, like, it's Tuesday, what should we do today? <laughs> um, I kind of hate best practices because um, it, it just, for two reasons, one, I, and maybe this is just the entrepreneur in me, but I friggin' hate it when everyone copycats the crap out of everything. It drives me nuts. Like, have some original thought, right? Like, try something different, see what works. It's like, nope, that's best practice. We'll do that. And, like, all that happens is, like, everyone blends together into the same blob-looking thing, and no one's different. It just bothers me. I don't like them. Um, 
But, but uh, how do I really feel about that? Um, the other thing I don't like about them is uh, it comes back to that idea that, that I, I touched on it earlier when I was talking, that it, it limits people's thinking. It limits innovation, right? So Becca, who works with me, is here somewhere. Where are you over there, Becca? Hi, hi. Um, and she's, you've been in, uh, when I've done the tennis ball thing. Have you done this? Okay. So there's this, I, I did it with some of our teams before where you give people this, you write out this list of rules and you give them these tennis balls and they have to pass them around in this group and there's particular rules they have to follow. All they know is exactly what the rules say, right? And they do the exercise and they see how fast they can do it and we try and we time them and they get, they get faster, 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 you know, and it's like taking them a couple minutes to do a certain number of cycles. And then all of a sudden I tell them, well, did you know that um, world class in this is that you can do it in like eight seconds? And they're like, no. And I'm like, it's been done. I'm not lying to you. It's been done. Eight seconds. You can do it in eight seconds. You're doing it in like two minutes. And they're like, shit. Okay. All of a sudden, they look at it, and they rethink, and they innovate. They follow the rules. They don't break the rules, but they realize that like, well, somebody else did this, so it must be possible, right? Now, all of a sudden, they do it. That's the, that is the problem with best practices is like, you, you, you need to be careful uh, because they will potentially limit innovation because everything is the best practice until like it's not anymore, right? And I'm pretty sure that like the processes we use as best practices today like aren't the same things that were best practices like, you know, 50 years ago, right? So that's how I feel about best practices. Uh, they're good within limits. Um, what the hell is, oh, you, oh yeah, frameworks. How do I feel about frameworks? Uh, we use a framework um, and I think that frameworks for, I think it depends on the company, right? In us and the way we're wired in our DNA, uh, we, we needed a framework. Um, we, I think a, we're, a, we're very entrepreneurial and that's potentially like you know, something that we have to watch out for that comes from me. Oops, and I, I push real hard on that and that's not always, okay. that's not always good. We don't always get you know, the results we need and sometimes there needs to be structure. The number one thing that I like um, that a system gives us is it gives us this like circadian rhythm, right? That like we start to op we can start to operate the organization to in terms of when like this happens weekly, this happens quarterly, you know, this happens this weekly, monthly, quarterly, annually, and we can start to build these cycles and these rhythms around what we're doing in decision making, and that feeds throughout the company. Um, but I do agree with Brian that like it can encourage some hierarchical thinking that doesn't always work, uh, especially the communication aspects of some of these things where it's like, this should communicate up out of the meeting and then this will communicate back down and it's like, doesn't work, right? And that doesn't really happen uh, very effectively. So I do think you have to be you know, a little bit careful there, so. Yeah, um, all right, we'll do one last um, topic here because then we're gonna break for lunch here in a few minutes and we'll have more, we're gonna have Mike and Brian at, at the end of the day panel with the other two speakers, Denise and with Beth Kelly and with um, Matt Young. But um, one of the things I want to talk about was just kind of failure. There's a couple of people that asked, you know, what was your biggest failure? Um, but also with reflection on failures that you've had. Um, so I wanted to ask, I wanted to kind of pull the room. Um, who in the room has had uh, a failure that then they've actually then taken and actually debriefed and thought about, you know, was something that didn't go well and then actually communicated that back to their team and saying, Hey, we didn't, you know, we didn't do this. Or I didn't do this well. Or hey, as a team, we you didn't do this well. But hey, this is what we're going to do, you know, to change that. How many, how many people have done that, you know, in the organization? Okay. Um, so I think that's a powerful thing that you know, getting that habit of, of of really communicating the why, but communicating, you know, hey, we, you know, we didn't do this right. Let's try this other thing. And so 
Um, Mike and Brian, I'd, I'd like to ask you guys, like, what's, what's one of the biggest failures that you feel like you've had in business or in maybe a, you know, a big initiative? And then, and then talk about the response to that and maybe how you could have done better you know, as a result. Where to start? <laughs> oh man! I, I, my, well, all that keeps coming to mind is early in my career, I got put. I, I worked for a consulting firm um, straight out of grad school, and really quickly, I had a whole team of other PhD level consultants reporting to me. And I'm like one year out of grad school, and some of the, I, I was not ready for that. And so early, in the, and I think this is true for a lot of early career. You know, they just don't. Humility is not in the game. That's not how you're going to win. Being, you know, win influence or win, um, you know, credibility uh, with humility when you're young. And man, I, there were so many failures, so many mistakes, and I didn't do that, right? But eventually, I kind of figured it out um, how to have more influence. It's, I mean, J Jim Collins told us this like 25 years ago. Humility, 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 right? Is so so critical, and um, I. I mean, it's easy for me now. I make mistakes all the time, and right, um, and, so, and some big ones. Um, hopefully, I'm not making too many in my in my in my job at Calvin. Um, I'm sure I am in some, but um, I definitely with I, I my business, my consulting business is a small business. Is my wife and I. She's also an, an industrial organizational psychologist. She runs the business more. I make a lot. Thank goodness for her, because I make a lot of kind of bad choices around what we ought to be doing, how we should do it, and she corrects me all the time. And it, I'm very easy to show humility with my wife, right? It's great having your wife as a business partner. There's no under the, you know, under the, it is, it's great. It's we've worked together our entire life. I don't know, I met my wife in middle school and we've worked every single place we've ever worked together. So I don't know any different. <laughs> um, but the honesty and openness that, right, you can have with that, I wish I had that with all of my colleagues, right? But I, I mean, it's humility. Um, and it's really hard in the moment, but it can be so valuable um, after it's done. Yeah, um, boy, like this is, this is a big conversation, right? Like particular failures, oh my gosh, I could make a huge list. Anything from um, being blinded by growth to the point where I'll take on, I, I took you know, customers that I shouldn't have taken on, I knew they didn't fit our purpose and vision, and then had to make tough decisions to go back and like fire them afterward uh, because I had to realize that like that was bad and I was hurting my people and, and those were bad decisions. Um, I mean, I've had multiple equity transactions in my business before, um, and many times uh, those things came because, um, you know, I I just did things too easily, right? Like, oh yep, yep, this is gonna be great, and like, you know, I I have a thing I like to. I think I said it to you yesterday, Becca. Um, the world makes it really easy for you to sign up for shit, and really hard to unsign up for it later. Okay, like. You want to go to school? No problem. Here's a bunch of debt. You can go to school, but like you can't get out from under it. Oh, you want a mortgage? You want this? You want that? And and um, that that was something that you know I've had multiple earlier in our business. We had additional partners and all kinds of things, and like those were really painful things um, that we had to deal with. But uh, you know, as far as like something within me that I see as as an issue that I really struggle with is like I have a really hard time asking and accepting help like I, I struggle with that big time um, often because I feel like that makes me look weak or it's not something I should do and sometimes that leads me to make bad decisions or um, 
you know, realize afterward if I would have just listened to the help this person was offering me, um, then things would have turned out a lot different. And that seems to be a lesson that I like learn. I'm learning over and over and over again. Uh, hopefully, lasts at some point. But yeah. so, well, thank you guys. Um, with that, we're going to release for lunch. Uh, could you give a, a round of applause for Mike and Brian? Um,